Uh, as a new month begins, I want to encourage you to pause and pray in your own life, um, asking God to show you where He wants you to give your best attention to over the coming months. Uh, I really try and take seriously in my own life Jesus' enshrinement of the greatest commandment to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's a, that's a really dynamic and exciting journey when we open ourselves to the Spirit's direction. And instead of making the journey of faith mechanized where we just do th- things all the time, we pause and sit under uh, the Spirit's direction and say, God, if there's a way that you want me to go, if there's an email that you want me to send, if there's a relationship that you want me to move into or move out of, or if there's something you want to put on my heart, would you show me? Uh, it's amazing what God does when we just pause and don't just barrel on ahead in our own even well-intentioned um, willpower. And, you know, I, I use heart, soul, mind, and strength to highlight four broad areas in our lives, heart being relationships and community, soul being interiority, prayer, worship, um, the mind being growing in God's truth, knowledge of scripture and good Christian writing, and strength being active in the world, promoting peace and justice, being a part of Christ's mission to serve and to tangibly make a difference in the lives of people, a positive difference in Jesus' name. And so I take those four kind of areas and make a little quadrant and just say, God, if there's something specific you want to put on my heart, like, speak now. Like, your servant's listening. I want to be attentive to your spirit. And then what I also do is I send out a community-wide discipleship challenge. And for this month, it's to raise funds for Angela and Tomas's uh, Selkirk tuition. Uh, they shared an awesome report last month, and it's a, such a privilege to be able to have them in our community and to support them in their studies. And all that that degree is going to mean, not just for their lives, but the other children coming up in English House who really see that there are people who want to support them into economic empowerment, into dignifying work, which can break cycles of poverty, break cycles of uh, poverty mindsets. And so what we're doing to be a part of this is really honestly extraordinary. So um, if you have extra money, give it. If you don't have extra money, then I always challenge myself, what is one little thing I could give up this month? Whether it's coffees or this, or going out to eat once or twice, save money and redirect that towards um, and, and you can use all the same mechanisms. You can give it an envelope at the back. You can donate e-transfer donations at nelsoncovenant.com. Just on the memo or on the note, just say for the Guatemalan students or for the February fundraiser. Um, but I want to invite us into that because it's so, so important. Okay, we're going to continue to move through the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 8 today. So if you have your Bible, you can open up there. I am going to be asking, giving you the heads up, I am going to ask for interaction around what do we do with a chapter like this? How do, how, what are lessons we could learn from it? So just have that in mind as you're kind of tracking through things. Maybe you have the sermon notes uh, that are on the front, uh, on the little side table as you come in there. First Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, so we're kind of jumping into the future here a fair amount. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So again, if you're kind of tracking with the narrative, this is kind of where 1 Samuel opened. You had Eli and his corrupt sons. 
But then God raises up Samuel. Praise God, awesome. God's cleaning house, and now we're gonna get an instantiation of godly leadership. But now Samuel's old, and his sons are kind of slipping into the same pattern. So this is kind of a gut punch. It's like, oh, really? For real? It just feels like the tide is, you know, <laughs> that the, the, the arc of all these leaders is just constantly being bent towards injustice and corruption. Verse 4, so all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, okay, you're old, and your sons don't follow in your ways. So now is the time to appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Why do they ask for a king? Why is there this um, nationwide intervention that says now is the time for a king? One of the things that commentators will highlight here is that for Israel to ask for a king is to express a profound disconnect and dissatisfaction with who they're meant to be as a people. They've been constituted, they were taken from slavery, brought to Sinai, formed as a nation, given literal laws, commandments, so that they would be distinct from the nations. They've been uh, under the leadership of different religious judges who served to point them towards God. And now what they're doing is they're looking at the nations around them and what has happened is over time, they've sort of become dissatisfied with kind of like sticking out in an awkward way. And notice that they're not just asking for a king, but they want a king like all the other nations have. Samuel, we kind of tried this thing where we're like distinct and doing God's way. And like we're not turning our back on God, but could we have a king like all the other nations have? Could we just sort of blend in a little more? I think that would help us a lot. No one else, when we look around, is doing life the way we're doing it. And at first we were like, this is really exciting. But now we're kind of like, eh. Why don't we just kind of go with the, the zeitgeist of what it feels like people around us are leaning into. And when they're asking for a king like all the other nations have, they want a king that has clout, a king that has status, a king that has style, a king who other nations look at, and because of the wealth and the power and the good looks and the, uh, um, the military might, the other nations say, wow, that nation is awesome because look at how strong and big and powerful and bold their king is. But they never considered what they're actually asking for. And it's actually a really sad part of the narrative because they've, called to be dis they've been called to be distinct and now they're saying, yeah, not, not really so much though. We... Um, this big vision of living under God and being a light to the nations, that's kind of stopped being exciting to us and it actually just feels really, it's just too demanding and oppressive. Can we just kind of shrink the, the vision for our lives and just kind of do what everyone else is doing? Verse six, it says, when they said, give us a king to lead us, it displeased Samuel. 
this cuts Samuel to the heart. He's like, Wait, this, is not the way, this is not the way we're supposed to be going. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, because it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And they have done from this, sorry, as they have done from this day, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, they've forsaken me, they've served other gods, and that's what they're doing to you. But, this is the interesting part, God says, listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim his rights. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what God says. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve in his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots, and he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. And then he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkey he will take for his use. He will take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen. But God will not answer you on that day. Now if you read that list of warnings, one of the themes that comes up, one of the words that gets repeated is, what is this king going to do? He's going to take. He's going to take this, he's going to take that, he's going to take that, he's going to take this, he's going to take, and ultimately you're going to have to serve his interests to the point where you're essentially going to be his slave. Now this isn't cruel of God. They've asked for a king like all the other nations had. That's what they wanted. And God is saying, Okay. And this is an example sometimes where God doesn't actively judge us in the sense that he is presenting or um, placing, an init- uh, kind of proactively adding something to our life in response to what we have done, but he's passively giving us the desire of our hearts. And saying, oh, okay, this, like this is what you want? His judgment is, I'm going to actually not stop that from happening. I'll answer your prayer. And he does, but he warns them. He says, this king, like every other king around you, is going to be parasitic. This king will not serve you. He will not serve my agenda in the way that I want you to be ruled as a people. Kings take and take, and then when everything is gone, he's going to force you to serve He's going to act like a conqueror. Verse 19, this is, this is crazy. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. Nope. We want, a king to, we want a king over us. Heard the warning? Thanks? No. We, we want, we're still in this. Because then we'll, we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us. And go out before us and fight our battles. 
which is really crazy because in the last few chapters, God has made it very clear he's more than competent to to fight their battles for them when they surrender and return to him. Then he will usher in victory and prosperity and peace. That was the last chapter. That's how the last chapter ended. And these years later, whether it's 20 or 30, now they're saying, no, we need a king because then we, we would just feel more secure. Like it would just be better. We could kind of rest into, yeah, like this is, this is, that, this is the way things have to be in the world if you want economic and military security. And if you want to be, um, have the status of being a great nation, you, you need a great king. It's amazing. Israel's saying, we hear what God's saying, we just say no. We want to not have to live under God's demands. We want the flexibility to look around us and kind of say, yeah, this is the way that seems right to us. So you're getting this inversion of the spirit back into during the time of Judges where everyone's doing what seems right in their own eyes. And it's maybe not everybody at the individual level, but now there's a critical mass in Israel that does look around and say, God says this, but, you know, when you think about it, when you get some distance, is that really the best way? I think we'll, we'll try this way. That's a really dangerous path. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate the, the forewarning, God, but we're, we're still going to go down this road. When Samuel heard, verse 21, all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord said, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. There's a few chapters in First and Second Samuel that are like really famous. David and Goliath comes to mind. Um, but this is another big one because it's a pivotal turning point in Israel's history. And it shows us something about not just Israel's spiritual condition, but really our condition as well. This is part of why we study the history books of the Old Testament and the journey of Israel. God's people before Jesus, we don't want to be so arrogant as to assume now that we have, now that Christ has come, his spirit is at work in us, we can't fall prey to the same temptations and missteps that have plagued God's people from when they were first rescued from slavery. So I've got some notes here. I've got some... um, things that I've been thinking through over this week. But I think it's always good to hear what is sticking out to you. What are the lessons that you think modern believers could take or should take from 1 Samuel 8? Could be big stuff, could be small, something you notice, something you think we should be aware of. Just Let's just hear a few of them and see, see where the conversation goes. What are lessons that we learn about God, about ourselves, about the challenges of following him from this passage? So good, absolutely. I mean, it's a very simple message, but again, we need to be reminded when God speaks clearly about something, either through his word or through those promptings where God really makes it clear, this is what you're to do. This is what I want you to do. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean a voice. I just mean that in those moments, um, and I don't have them very often, but there are times where God very clearly sets an impression on my life. And then I pray about it, and then I 
talked about it with other people, but once God has made his will known, like we have to, <laughs> we have to follow through, especially when it doesn't make sense to us. That's part of what faith is. It's recognizing, like Rick said, like God's ways are higher than our ways. Like he literally has a perspective we don't have. So it might look to us at our level because we're thinking through 10 factors. Well, wouldn't it just be better if I just did this? And God's saying, well, because I'm seeing millions of intersecting variables, this is what I'm calling you to do. So yeah, we need to be aware of that. Um, we need to have a, we need to be sensitized to a prideful heart where we can begin to kind of, we'd never say it out loud, I know better than God, but do, does the way we process um, God's truth and apply it to our life look more like the Israelites who are like listening to God, thanks for that, nope, and I'll go over here. And that's a danger that will, is that, the, is that our doorstep throughout our Christian life? Josh. You should never push away God's word. Yeah, absolutely. Be in it. This is why it's important to kind of be steeping in God's word, to be moving through the Gospels, the New Testament writings, yes, but then going back in and saying, where did other people really make missteps that just derailed their life? And how can I learn from that? And this is why um, evangelicals have always emphasized somehow engaging the Bible every day. It doesn't have to be mechanical. You could be listening to it. You could be trying to memorize it. You could be reading huge chunks of it. You could just be taking a verse. But you're in the Word consistently so that you are aware of, you're hearing, right, the Word of God, the vocal cords of the Holy Spirit. You're hearing God's Word because we can't obey God if we don't know what God wants us to do. What's another um, lesson that we might learn from a passage like this? Kevin? Totally, yeah. So for those of you who are listening online, just this reflection about how it, it, it kind of parallels Jesus' um, uh, command to render under Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and to make sure those are separate because pagan societies were always conflating religious allegiance with political allegiance. And you don't just have a great king that you're like, awesome king, you worship the king. So that when the early church begins to expand in the first century, the most dangerous thing you could say publicly was Jesus is Lord. It's the most dangerous thing you can do publicly because everyone knew that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. And there's all kinds of interesting interplays here in terms of the relationship between God and government. But one of the warnings is don't look for the power, wisdom, guidance, and security that only God can provide in any kind of political manifestation or structure or person. And at different times in church history and in different parts of the world even today, there's temptations by different people to center governmental power or all their hopes for these things around a particular political structure. 
And so there's a real warning here that says we need to do the difficult work of saying, of separating those and saying, no, my allegiance is to God. I'm going to follow him. Government might be a good thing, uh, and it might be something that we want to celebrate when it's done in justice and in righteousness, but I'm never going to slip into the temptation of sidelining God and looking to a king or a prime minister or a president or a political movement as that which is going to save and deliver me into all that I'm wanting and needing in my life. Maybe one more. Does anyone else have a reflection? How about... Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Right, right, right. So our stance is to do it on our own, and it's something we have to feel about every day. And I would think you just do it as Yeah, this temptation to always look to other humans or sometimes even ourselves to say, at the end of the day, it rests with us to do something. And God is saying, that's not the way that I want you to live in a relationship with me. Your agency is important, but it has to flow out of a commitment to me. And that's why, as much as you become aware of it, it's a good practice, whatever you're doing. You commit your plans to the Lord, like Proverbs says. You say before you take different actions, especially as the scale and scope of it goes up in terms of consequence, God, this is what I think is right, but shut this down if this isn't from you. Your will be done in my life. This is what I'm praying for, God, but your will be done. We're always submitting because we don't see the bigger picture. Um, How about be careful what you wish for? Be careful what you ask God for and maybe look back in your life and take some time today to thank God for prayers he didn't answer because that was a mercy when you were like, for sure, God, do this right now and like, that'll be awesome. And, you know, this, you read this and you're like, wow, thanks God for <laughs> vetoing my immaturity and stupidity. But I think one of the, the biggest things is that drives this whole narrative is an aversion to holiness. Remember last week we talked about Ebenezer's and talked about how God calls us to be Ebenezer's standing stones that stick out, that other people see and say, what's going on there? That is weird. And then in winsome, gentle, loving ways we say, my life is different because like I serve a different master, I serve a different king. And I might not be able to explain it perfectly, but I do want to talk about what Jesus has done in my life. And God says to Israel, I want you to be an Ebenezer. You're not blending into the landscape. You stick out. So the other nations are like, what's going on with Israel? That's like a community that is not driven by warfare and conquest and expansion. They're driven by justice and righteousness and peace. They don't have to take over places. Other people want to become a part of what they're doing. I want a, I want a piece of that. How do I, be, how do I become a part of Israel? But Israel here is saying like, ah, I don't, we don't want to stick out anymore. It's awkward. It's lonely. There's a rush that comes from looking around and having the nations around you say, you're awesome. You're just like us. You fit in. And we can think that's particularly heightened during the adolescent years where in some ways we want to stick out like we don't want to be like our parents or like from these old fuddy-duddies, but we're obsessed with looking around us and saying, oh, what do I need to do? What do I need to wear? How do I need to act? What do I need to watch in order to fit in? 
because we want to fit in. But that doesn't stop when we're adolescents. There's a constant temptation for the church and for Christians to look around and say, oh, this is really awkward for us to, even, even just something like prioritize gathering on Sunday morning to sing love songs to Jesus. None of the people in your life who aren't Christians think that's awesome. <laughs> the, the strongest they're going to get is like, you do you, like not my thing, but whatever. And then there's going to be all the people who just think it's, I'll use plight words because there's little ears present, but foolhardy. A ridiculous waste of time. Sticking out is hard. Being holy, which means to be distinct, different from, is hard. But that's what we're called to be as Christians. And not in a holier-than-thou way where we think we're better than other people. But as we listen to God and not the zeitgeist around us and always challenge what's happening in the culture and saying, well, maybe there are some things we can adopt, but there's going to be other things that we can't because God's word makes it clear here. So while it might be really tempting to give over into anger in this area, God's calling us to be peacemakers. We might take a hit for that. We might stick out because of that, but we're going to do it anyways. Or when the culture's saying yes to these things, we have to say no to these things. Or when the culture says, oh, don't worry about that, we have to worry about it. And that can be tiring because when you look around and the media, the entertainment structure, all the big kind of pillars of cultural communication aren't championing what you're doing, you can kind of understand Israel being like, ah, this is kind of tiring. Why don't we just go with the flow? So we have to guard against that. We have to understand that following Jesus means we're going to be moving against not all the cultural currents, but many of them. And we have to understand that being a Christian means we're just not going to fit in in every way. That people on your sports team, in your class, at your work, in your neighborhood are just going to always be like, wow, that's amazing. I, I'm, wow, that's awesome. Good for you. That, that makes total sense to me. And we have to ask God to guard us from the discouragement that can come from recognizing that we're not we're not going to be like, our life shouldn't be like those who don't love or know Jesus. All too often, Christians can become more like Israel than they'd like to admit. I can do that in my own life. We can forsake the security of knowing God, looking to God, centering God, and we can grasp a compromise to some other authority that other people in my life are like, yeah, that's, I think that's a smarter idea. Jeff, like, just slow down on like the God, Jesus, Bible stuff a little bit and like up this over here. And in our clearest and most honest moments, we can be tempted at different times in our life to conform to the spirit of the times rather than to say, how am I called to stick out? not in a contrarian way, not just to stick out for sticking out's sake, but sticking out because I'm following God, sticking out for God's sake. Our call is not to be like the other nations. Our call is to be a distinct people, a holy people. And although that word can have different nuances, it means a people whose lives are different and good, like fundamentally and transformatively good because we're being challenged and changed by the love of Jesus. 
That's what it means to have Jesus as king. To be a Christian is to believe and to live into that truth that Jesus is king. And just that proclamation is enough to make you very different and to stick out in, in your contexts. Right? I talked about how the earliest um, troublemaking declaration of faith was two words in Greek, Kyrios Jesus, Jesus is Lord. But that's what we're called to. But Lord is a, is a word that we can kind of interplay with king. Jesus is my highest authority. And because of that authority, I try and live my life differently. I make mistakes, I'm going to learn, I'm going to make missteps, I'm going to repair where I need to, but I'm pursuing him and his vision for my life, not a counterfeit vision that's on offer with any of the flavors of the month. And so it's important that we know that we need to not just believe in Jesus, but go on the journey of saying, what does it mean to live with him as my king every day? And we need to take that seriously because if we believe in Jesus but reject him functionally in our life as king, then we shouldn't be surprised if, like Israel, we end up enslaved to some other minor tyrant who takes from us, takes from us, takes from us, takes from us. We serve them more and more with diminishing returns and ultimately we become enslaved to this person, to this ideology, to this substance. Jesus is the only king who will redeem, save, restore, uplift, and empower you because he's the come, he's the king that came not to extract and to take, but to give. And when his spirit is at work in our life, that's the pattern that he conforms us to. So let's serve King Jesus. Let's be increasingly confident and graciously humble in sticking out and allow him to lead us forward into lives that stand out because of our commitment to pleasing him and advancing his purposes in the world. Let's pray.